You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, happiness. Come on, get it. I have a very pessimistic view of life. You should know this about me if we're going to go out. You know, I, I just feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those are the two categories, you know? The, uh, the horrible would be like, um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. cripples. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. You know, and the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable. Because that's you're very lucky. Yes, you feel lousy, miserable, but wait, there's hope. That's what every pessimist wants to hear, right? Hope, blue skies, somewhere over the rainbow, all that sort of stuff. I can hear your eyeballs rolling now, but deep down, in an evolutionary sense... Humans are optimists, and not only that, we have these regular peak moods of positivity, and we're happy at times when we don't expect to be. So now there's a whole science devoted to understanding the happiness of human and non-human animals. Including why our brains didn't get the memo and keep screwing things up for us. You'll be dazed by the science. It's Happy Days on Big Picture Science, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Now, let's start with optimism. That's that feeling deep down that everything's going to be all right. Well, according to cognitive neuroscientist Tally Sherratt, we find happiness in the most unlikely of places and in the most unusual of times. Astronomer Frank Drake remembers being a young boy during World War II. One of the most shocking days in my life was, of course, December 7th, 1941. That day I went to the movies with my sister. I was 11 years old. And when I came out of the movie, my father told me that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor and that we were at war. And this was very frightening to an 11-year-old. I didn't know what that meant. Were we about to be attacked in Chicago where I live? What was going to happen? There were major shortages, food shortage, particularly with sugar. That became very difficult to obtain. Gasoline became rationed. And this, of course, uh, in a way limited what you ate and also where you could go and what you could do. Yet you get used to those things very quickly and... Uh, I went to Boy Scout meetings, I went to school every day, and after school I played with my friends, baseball or softball or whatever, and it was a happy time. So, Tally, in what way is Frank's situation common among humans that we see the good in situations and kind of hope for the best and, you know, life goes on? 
What we find is that most people are actually optimistic or have an optimism bias. By that, we mean that they tend to overestimate the likelihood of positive events in their lives and underestimate the negative events. And we find that in about 80% of the population. Also, people tend to always look for the silver linings. If something negative happens, even if it's something bad, such as unemployment or illness or divorce, after the initial shock, people do try to find the positive within the negative. So despite the fact that, for example, today the economy's down, the Middle East is roiling, the political scene is disquieting, and yet we're still optimistic. Yes, we tend to be optimistic, but we're mostly optimistic about our own future. So people are optimistic about themselves, their children, their families, but not about the world in general. People tend to be somewhat pessimistic about where the leaders are taking us, where the economy is going. There is a big difference between what we call private optimism versus public dismay. Is this just whistling in the dark when it comes to our personal optimism? Are people simply being irrational? We have to remember that the the tendency to have an optimism bias is, in most people, only mild. It's somewhat irrational in the terms that there's evidence to suggest the contrary, but we don't disregard this evidence when we think about the future. But on the positive side, it's actually good for us. There's a lot of benefits to our health and to our careers and to our personal life to be optimistic. So it sounds like optimism influences how we make decisions. Absolutely. I mean, a decision is made based on what you expect the outcome to be, right? So if you decide to apply for a job or to move to live in another country or um, to get married, all of these decisions are based on how do you think the outcome will make you feel? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Are you going to stay married for many years? Are you going to divorce? Are you going to like the new city that you've moved into? And so if we're somewhat biased in how we expect things to turn out, that will certainly influence the decisions that we make. If you sat around and thought about it, the fact that we are all mortal and in the end we're all going to die, I mean, you know, if you took that to heart, you'd probably never get out of bed or leave the savannas of Africa and, you know, move to some other continent. So I suppose the ones that were not optimistic just got dropped out of the gene pool slightly more often than the ones that were. Yeah, I mean, it's very important for the human development because in order to explore, you have to imagine that there's something out there for you to find and something possibly better. What's fascinating is that your work suggests something about our memory, too, because when you ask people about horrible events or maybe just a bad day, they often give them rosier interpretations than might have been warranted. I mean, what, what sort of things do they say? Well, the effect on memory is a bit complicated. People actually remember negative and positive information quite well. You know, everyone knows that divorce rates are about 50%. But it's how we use that information, how we think that is relevant to us, and how we use that information to think about our future, which differs for negative information about the future and positive. And it's true that when we try to think about what happened to us in the past, we may take a more of a positive look. But the positive bias is mostly seen when we think about the future. And the reason is that the future is unconstrained. It's not happened yet. And so for the future, we can put whatever interpretation we want, less so for the past and less so for the present. This idea that you've talked about, that we envision the future, that uh, in fact we recall things so that we can help to think about the future or act in the future – That's fairly special with humans, isn't it? Because I'm told that a lot of critters have a very short time span. They they don't remember anything more than five seconds back. They can't think into the future at all and so forth. Is that truly unique to humans? 
unique to humans. It's unclear if all, you know, but all animals have the ability to think about the future or make any actions that suggest that they have any indication of the future. But there are some species in which you do see quite a long-term memory and an ability to act towards the future. And it's been shown that birds can remember for months where they hide their food. And they can actually put food in places where they expect food to be scarce, meaning that they actually can think into the future and plan ahead so they have the resources they need in places where maybe they don't usually find food. This is sort of encouraging, I guess. It's nice to know that so many people are optimistic, but, you know, when I'm thinking over the roster of people that I know fairly well, a lot of them are kind of pessimistic, and you suggest something that sounds like a good idea, and they'll tell you 12 reasons that it's not a good idea. How do you respond to that? So optimism is not necessarily about being upbeat. It's not about being happy. It's not people walking around jumping with joy just means that you expect things to be slightly better than what they end up being. So it might be that you're not expecting things to be very good, but you're expecting them to be a bit better than they what they end up being. And this is seen again and again in 80% of the population. So even someone who looks quite pessimistic and is always negative, in most cases, we will show an optimism bias in that person. And the way that we do it is quite simple. We simply record people's expectations of what they expect to happen. For example, in the next month, we ask them, do you expect to see a movie that you like, to get stuck in traffic, and so on and so on. And at the end of the month, you can bring them back and see what happened and what did not happen. You can also ask people what do they think their likelihood is from suffering all kinds of illnesses and compare that to the frequency, well-known frequency in the population. Using these very measurable ways, you can show that about 80% of the people are optimistic. Now, you do have the 20% who are not, and they tend to be depressed. With mild depression related to an unbiased view of the future, So mildly depressed individuals are actually better at predicting future events and uh, severely depressed individuals having a pessimistic bias. So they tend to think that things will end up being worse than they are. It sounds like we ought to elect politicians that are mildly depressed then since they have the most realistic view of what's down the pike. No, 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 because optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's better to have a politician that is optimistic so that he can then convey this optimism to everyone else. That means that most likely the outcome of that country will be better than what it would be if that person was not optimistic. Tali Sharat, thank you so much for talking with me. I hope to maintain a positive outlook. Thank you. Tally Sherratt is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging at University College London, and she's the author of The Optimism Bias, A Tour of the Irrationally Positive Brain. Well, Molly, you know, it just makes sense from an evolutionary point of view, because if we weren't wired to be somewhat optimistic, of course, we wouldn't be here, because it was the optimists that, you know, walked out of Africa, of course, and you know, led to our uh, settling of the new world eventually. That's right. We'd never get out of bed in the morning. And sometimes when we get out of bed in the morning, it feels like we're running this rat race, the way that rats run on a hamster wheel. Of course, that would make them hamsters. Okay, so that's not the rat race. Yeah, No, that would be transmutation of rodents. <laughs> okay, but you know what I'm saying, that idea that everything's cyclic. Yeah, indeed. The point is, if you feel that there is some sort of predictability about your life, a predictability that you can't escape, well, there's a reason for it. You're one of many billion participants in the global happiness cycle. And it all begins when you wake up. Well, there is a morning peak in positive affect 
around breakfast time. Today I will write my novel. And then it's downhill from there. If I eat more potato chips, then I'll get some inspiration. The mood deteriorates over the course of the day. Writing is lame. I hate the paisley in this carpet. Why is the neighbor kid in the yard again? Hey, you Get off my lawn! And then there is a rebound. I know how this story will begin. And then another peak at about bedtime. It was the most awesome of times. It was the least awesome of times. It was the age of knowing stuff and the age of being like, what? Man, I am on a roll. Cornell University sociologist Michael Macy and his team discovered this mood cycle not by interviewing participants in the traditional means or having them fill out questionnaires, but by studying their tweets on Twitter. It applies across very diverse cultures. We compared India, English-speaking Africa, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., Canada, U.S., and we found very that, that same pattern across very diverse cultures. But we also compared chronotypes, like night owls, morning people, afternoon people. And what we found, we broke it down into four chronotypes based on six-hour intervals. And three of the four were identical to each other, and they had that same pattern of peak positive in the morning, deterioration, and then rebound in the evening. The one group that was different were the night owls. The night owls do not have the rebound in the evening. They have that same deterioration during the day, but then they don't have the pickup at night, which was a little bit surprising because intuitively you might think, well, night owls, surely they're happy at night. There must be an upbeat mood at night, but that's not what we found. Well, this is quite interesting. Now, you came to these conclusions. You, you sort of plotted out our daily happiness curves by studying about a gazillion Twitter tweets. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that works. How how does studying Twitter tweets tell you anything about whether people are happy at 3 in the afternoon? Well, we're not looking for their self-expression or their, their statement about their mood. We're picking it up sort of inadvertently, if you will, from a bag of words. In other words, when I say a bag of words, that's sort of parlance in the linguistics community for words that don't have any syntax. You're just taking the words. So we pool all of their words for a given hour on a given day, let's say Tuesday, 1 to 2 p.m. We take all the words that a person writes during that time period. Now we've got the bag of words, and we go through and we identify all the positive words and all the negative words. Can you give me examples of positive and negative words? Sure. Awesome, incredible, wonderful, fantastic. Uh, Negative words, anxious, embarrassed, guilty, ashamed, tired, and so on. So you have, there are about, I think, around 500 positive words in the lexicon that we use, not quite as many negative words. So since we have both these two lists of positive words and negative words, we can measure positive and negative feeling independently, not as two ends of a continuum, but as two separate dimensions, which turns out, interestingly enough, they're not highly correlated. In fact, the correlation is almost zero, which means that you can be high in positive and high in negative or low in both. So you have computer algorithms, I mean, really programs, right, sifting through the texts of all these tweets, making a decision about whether the tweeter was uh, happy or otherwise. But I mean, isn't there some ambiguity there? I mean, I, I might tweet, hey, I hope we can kill some time at the movies tonight. And you look at that word kill and you think, well, that's pretty negative. Whereas, in fact, it was a very positive tweet. I mean, is, is this reliable? Actually, it's even worse than that. What happens if somebody says not happy? We're going to pick up the happy, and yet they said not happy. 
What if they say good morning, not because they're in a good mood, but it's just a social ritual. You say good morning in the morning. Maybe that blip that we're seeing at breakfast, that's just people saying good morning, right? So we were concerned about that, and we checked all those things. So we checked all the knots, and we checked the good mornings, and we checked the happy birthdays. And it turns out those things are infrequent enough that they don't budge these averages that we're picking up over millions of tweets, actually a half a billion tweets. That's a lot of tweet pleasure. What about sample bias? I mean, isn't the Twitter crowd kind of a younger crowd? Maybe what you're proving only applies to, I don't know, teenagers. Well, you know, that's a popular misconception about Twitter. Twitter is actually not a younger crowd. It's pretty much centered around the 30-year-olds and then trails off down to the teenagers and then trails off down to the people in their 50s. And there are about as many youngsters, I mean people adolescent age, as there are people 55 and over. So it's, it's really not – it's not a younger crowd, but it's obviously not representative of the underlying population. Um, it is overall somewhat younger than the average population, somewhat more affluent, somewhat better educated. It's actually ethnically diverse in the U.S. It's disproportionately African-American, for example. So it's not a random sample, and we're careful in the article to remind readers not to treat this as a random sample. On the other hand, compared to the studies that were done in the past using undergraduates brought into the, to the psych lab, much more diverse population and obviously much larger. So we're happiest in the mornings and then late at mm-hmm. night unless we're night owls. Uh, does that finding surprise anyone? I mean, maybe it's just that we haven't yet gotten to the office and found all the accumulated mm-hmm. troubles and terrors that confront most people when they do get to the office. Or maybe it was a bad commute. I mean, is there something surprising in these results? That's a great question. In fact, when we first saw the pattern, we had not disaggregated it into days of the week yet. And when we looked at it, we said, well, of course, uh, work sucks. And when we showed this to friends and family and other colleagues, social and behavioral scientists, they all said the same thing. Well, it's work. So then we disaggregated it into the days of the week. And we looked at the Sunday pattern, the Monday, the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And there it was a really interesting surprise. It's not work. We found the same pattern on the weekends that you find Monday through Friday. So that suggests that that there is a rhythmic quality to human moods, that it's coincident with the fact that we're at work, but we find it even on the days when people are mostly not working. So if our changes in mood during the course of the day are not simply due to our work schedule, then what is causing them? Why, Why do they go down and go back up? We think it has a lot to do with sleep and also with day length when the sun is rising and setting. And those things are interacting with cultural rules about when we have to get up and go to work, which also affects how our sleep ends. Does it end with an alarm clock going off or do we wake up naturally? So all these factors are interacting with one another in what are no doubt very complicated ways, but sleep clearly is an important element. How would you characterize the importance of of your study here, Michael? That's a great question. In some ways, the real importance of this study is as an example of a new way of doing social and behavioral science. In the past, When we wanted to observe human behavior, especially to see it with temporal granularity, watching behavior unfold hour by hour, we had to do it in the lab with a very small sample, usually not very representative, probably an American undergraduate brought into the lab. Or we could observe people in a village at, again, a very small scale. When we used the big data approaches of surveys, we could get people's retrospective accounts of their behaviors. We could, they could tell us what they think or what they want us to think that they think, but we could not actually observe them behaving. So now for the first time, we have the ability as social scientists and as behavioral scientists 
to observe human behavior as it unfolds in real time on a global scale. Michael Macy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you very much for your interest in our research. Michael Macy is a sociologist at Cornell University, and if you want to find out more about his Twitter happiness study, you can find a link to that on our website. Coming up, more science to put you in a happy daze, and why economists want to know how often you smile. And why science and joy go hand in hand. But then you knew that already, didn't you? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Happy Days on Big Picture Science, and we're in a daze. The Happiness Guide. Happiness the Science. The Happiness Makeover. Happiness and Economics. Because there's an avalanche of books devoted to the, the science of happiness from all sorts of angles. The nine rooms of happiness. Happiness now. And now Real economists happiness. want to get in happiness on the act. The Carol Graham has, for her career, studied global poverty, inequality, public health, and more recently, happiness, and how it's intertwined with these other issues. Perhaps a country's GDP, its gross domestic product, is not the best measure of its success. Maybe it should be replaced by a well-being index. That may be where we're headed. Carol, I understand that happiness is a goal, but how do you even define or measure happiness scientifically seems kind of vague. Well, it makes a lot of sense to measure it because what we've found is that all over the world, the basic determinants of what makes people happy as they report themselves, in other words, they're in their own definition of happiness, the basic determinants of happiness are extremely similar across people, across cultures all over the world. Income matters to happiness. Good health is very important. Stable employment is very important. Stable partnerships. There are very standard patterns, and that's with people defining happiness for themselves. As scientists or economists or psychologists working in the field, we actually don't use the term happiness as much as the broader term well-being, and we break it up into different components. So there's happiness as contentment, and we can measure that, and there's happiness in the sort of life purpose, life fulfillment sense, and we can also measure that. There's happiness as simple positive affect, people's natural character traits, and we can measure that as well. So we, we decompose the concept of happiness into different dimensions of people's well-being. Can you give me an example of a question you would ask me if you wanted to know if I were happy in one of these three realms of happiness? Well, the first, the open-ended happiness question, which is the simplest and most general question, one you want in the beginning of a survey. So you say, generally speaking, how happy are you with your life? And possible answers go from very happy to not at all happy. And the reason we want the question in the beginning of the survey is that the person just thinks about their life in general and are they happy or not? And then you get a fairly unbiased response. 
Um, then specifically, we ask questions to capture positive or negative affect. How often did you smile yesterday? Correlates very closely with people's general levels of positive affect, how kind of naturally happy they are. How often did you worry yesterday? captures real concerns about things like health problems and lack of health insurance and also just kind of being down. Another question is, did you do something meaningful at work yesterday? And it turns out that that translates very closely into people's productivity and what their, their purposefulness at work. But Carol, is it not the case that there are people living in countries that uh, we would consider economically deprived. And if you ask them if uh, they're content, if they're happy, I mean, the, the responses are not so different from what you would find in Europe or the United States. This is something that I've worked on a lot, and it, it, I think it is a, a challenge for the approach. And, and yes, when we ask open-ended happiness questions, we find, for example, in a study I did on happiness in Afghanistan, the people in Afghanistan score higher than the world average when you say, generally speaking, how happy are you with your life? Or how often did you smile yesterday? In part, that may be because they're naturally cheerful. In part, that may be because they've adapted to the adversity they live in. And it's a natural and wonderful human trait to be able to adapt to adversity and take pleasure in just daily life. So you're saying that you can be living in a third world country, even one that's had decades of war, and still be happy. I mean, maybe uh, this... In, in one... But wait, I've got I've to <laughs> give you the second part of that answer. You can be happy in a day-to-day -day contentment sense. But the same respondents in Afghanistan, when we ask them to compare their life to the best possible life they can imagine, which is another sort of relative happiness question, they score much lower than the world average. So when you ask them to think about their own situation and happiness in compared to sort of the, the best possible life they can imagine, which is now a global reference norm, then they score much lower. And one of the things that I found is that people who live in contexts of adversity and have low expectations emphasize the day-to-day -day components of their life as they think about their happiness more. They emphasize their friendships. They emphasize religion. They emphasize other things as they think about what makes them happy versus you can imagine a scientist who's trying to cure cancer who may be a little bit less happy in a day-to-day -day sense. Not that he or she doesn't care about friendships or family, but is more interested in this life purpose dimension of his or her life. And so those scores will be quite different. Has there been any response to the surveys that are made to find out if people are content and happy that have surprised you? Well, I can tell you a personal story about how I got into all of this that had all to do with that kind of surprise. This is well before I worked on happiness, and I was in, I'm from Peru, and I was looking at data on people's progress in and out of poverty, and looking at data on inequalities. And what we found that surprised us were remarkable exits out of poverty, lots of people leaving poverty very quickly. And that was a, a positive finding. And because it was so positive, I wanted to know how these same people thought their economic progress had been in the past few years. So we went back and re-interviewed the same people for whom we, we knew what their economic trajectory had been. And it turned out that over half of the people that had done the best in our surveys said their economic situation today was worse than it had been 10 years before. And this was, at the time, seemed an extremely puzzling finding. And it turned out that the reason that they reported unhappiness was their aspirations were growing even faster than their income gains. 
as they exited poverty, they became much more aware of how the rest of society lived, which made them much more aware of inequality. As they gained, they became loss averse. And so people who had previously had nothing now made some gains were then afraid of losing them, and that created angst. That finding got me into studying happiness to begin with. Uh, Carol, the U.S. Declaration of Independence talks about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which it at least makes it sound as if happiness is important. Should we be shifting our national priorities away from strictly economic ones? Well, I think our new capacity to measure happiness or well-being, to use a more academic or policy-oriented term, is giving us a tool that allows us to think about human flourishing in a broader sense, about well-being and the kind of societies that we want to be in a broader sense, as I mentioned before, without discounting the importance of income and economic growth as benchmarks of what we want to achieve, I think we now have the capacity to also see how or if certain components of our, whether it's our economic system or the way our societies are progressing, are having negative effects on well-being, even though our income measures may be coming in as positive scores. But to give you a more concrete example, the government of Britain, the conservative government of David Cameron, is actually implementing the well-being questions that I've talked about into its statistics already. So there is already a major OECD government putting these metrics into place. Other governments, Canada, China, Brazil, are all considering the usage of these metrics. And there's even going to be a National Academy of Sciences panel on well-being metrics as a possibility for U.S. statistics. And so this is happening. Well, it sounds like we we might soon have a, a kind of Dow Jones index of happiness. But I, but I kind of wonder, Carol, whether that would fly in the United States. I mean, we're kind of a material culture. Everybody accuses us of that and uh, makes it sound as if it's a bad thing. And when I watch television commercials, well, most of them seem to suggest that you can be happy if you just buy this new product, whether it's hairspray or cruise or, or simply a new car. Are, are we ever going to get beyond that? Do you think we can? I surely hope so. And I think these metrics may help us. In fact, when you think about the concept of the pursuit of happiness, and I have thought about it a lot in terms of what kind of definition of happiness would make sense within a U.S. public debate. I think it is deeply associated with the pursuit of opportunity, the opportunity to lead a fulfilling life. And we're a society that cares a lot about opportunities and not so much about outcomes. But giving our citizens the opportunities and equal opportunities to lead a fulfilling life, however that might be defined, whether it is selling the latest TV or whether it's curing cancer, to use an example I used earlier. All of those things could be captured and indeed emphasized by these measures in a, I think, a fuller way than simple income measures allow us to do. Carol Graham, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure thing. Carol Graham is an economist at the Brookings Institution and the author of The Pursuit of Happiness, An Economy of Well-Being. Well, Health and happiness. Check. Money and happiness. Check. Love and happiness. Check. We know what traditionally goes hand in hand with happiness. But Happiness Through Science is the title of UK-based comedian Robert Ince's traveling show. He's on the move, so we'll just check in and find out why he thinks rational beings can be happy. Robin, reading the headlines here from my copy of the latest Cosmological Times, the outlook seems grim. Here on page one... Universe expanding toward empty nothingness. And uh, here below the fold, the ultimate burnout. Sun has a scant five billion years left. 
it seems we're doomed, Robin, and we know we're doomed all because of science. Well, I suppose the first thing to make us reasonably content is to at least know that the human race will have died out long before we're engulfed by the sun. Now, that is, I suppose, existentially may still make you miserable, but I think that at least we know while the universe is alive, everything that has made us is totally recyclable. So though your consciousness will die and my consciousness will die, everything that has gone to make that consciousness, your fingernails uh, and your kneecaps and everything that has been you will at least get turned into something else. The tiny imprint will actually leave on the earth at least means we haven't really left a mess. I think that way can make you excited and happy about the world. (laughs) It sounds it, not leaving a mess. Well, something that we have done that may not increase our happiness is uh, removing a lot of the mystery of the universe with our science. Is that making us happier or otherwise? I think that none of the mystery is taken. That's the great thing about science. I think even the most confident human being would accept that we won't have a point where we go, oh, well, that's science finished. So we have a wonderful journey going on. And the mystery, every time that we manage to turn a stone and go, ah, we have found out what's under the stone and we've, we've got an end to that mystery, it turns out that by getting one answer, we've created 10 more questions. I think, for instance, you may say that the mystery of love is removed once we understand what love is, that it's you know, our olfactory receptors matching up to pheromones. But fortunately, evolution has played a wonderful trick on us that we can understand it, and by understanding it, it doesn't remove love. But if scientific knowledge makes us happy, Robin, why are so many scientists, apparently, rather dour? Well, do you know what? I would imagine a lot of scientists are rather down because they've had to constantly put up with people coming up to them saying, oh, you're one of those scientists. You've taken away all the mystery, have you? And anyway, explain the eye then. I think that's one of the problems. Perhaps they've they've got, they're down in the mouth because they're they're a little bit bored of people not keeping up. Well, finally, Robin, uh, what's the last bit of scientific news or discovery that's cheered you up? Well, I was very excited when the Large Hadron Collider, a fantastic particle accelerator underneath continental Europe, where they came across a result of something that might have moved faster than the speed of light. Now, of course, scientists immediately reacted as, as quickly as they could in terms of going, oh, no, if, if things possibly do move faster than the speed of light, then we might have to rewrite quite a few laws of physics. And that, to me, was just, even though there is much debate around these things and there has been no result that we've got to yet to see the level of excitement across the mainstream media into something involving a particle accelerator neutrinos which most people had never heard of before so they suddenly they're finding out about neutrinos about the fact that there is a, apparently there was at least a cosmic speed limit of the speed of light and these things spread across the mainstream media that excites me and that makes me very happy Robin Inns, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much, Seth. Robin Inns is a UK-based comedian. Coming up, why everything your brain thinks it knows about happiness is wrong. Also, how to have fun like a monkey or a fish. Are you in a happy days yet? We hope so. It's Big Picture Science. So you want our listeners to take this survey. That's right. But, you know, our listeners, they're busy people. Well, 30 seconds? It's not asking much. I mean, heck, what could anyone do in 30 seconds? You could brush one row of your teeth. Well, I suppose. You could cook a marshmallow. Yeah, but... You could toss a bagel from an airplane two miles up and it'll hit the ground. What are you two doing? We were just going to ask people to take the Big Picture Science survey on our website, bigpicturescience.org. But Molly thinks that people don't have 30 seconds of time to spare. You know how long you two have been arguing this? I know exactly how long we've been arguing this. 
With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, everything you've learned about happiness so far, do the opposite or something like that. It turns out that our brains don't have a very good idea of what will make us happy in the long run. But if we are our brains, then what's going on? Science and technology writer David DeSalvo has uncovered the horrible truth. Your brain is not your friend. What it wants is what it makes you think you want, even though what that want is leaves you wanting, at least according to DeSalvo, whose book is on the neuroscience of happiness and your brain. Your brain is indifferent to your happiness in a sense because your brain is the result of eons of evolutionary development, which was not going on necessarily with your happiness in mind or, or any of our happiness in mind. The primary purpose of that evolutionary development was to survive. Now, you have suggested that one of the problems is that our brains might be hardwired to make decisions that look good in the short term, but that might be bad in the long term. Can, can you give me an example of that kind of thing? Sure. And, and, you know, the term that psychologists and economists actually use to describe that is hyperbolic discounting, which essentially means that we have a preference for immediate rewards and we have a tendency to discount what's going to happen in the future. So if we are evaluating a purchase, for instance, of a high ticket item like a car, and the car salesman says, well, what do you want your monthly payment to be? Which is a typical question that we're asked by car salesmen, because they want you to focus on the short term. What, what can I afford to pay in a month? That takes the emphasis off of what will I pay in five years? You know, the car salesman is not in his best interest, obviously, to tell you, well, you're going to be paying $6,000 in additional interest over that time to get this car. So we're prone to give into that sort of thinking and, and look at our monthly picture in the case of the car and say, yeah, I can make that work every month and entirely discount, you know, the picture five years from now. Well, that sounds uh, like a fairly intellectual exercise. You've got to do a little bit of math. But I mean, what about a simpler example? I, I go to the movies, and there are those big bags of buttered popcorn. And, you know, I just want to have one of them, even though if I thought about it a little bit, I might decide, you know, in the long term, it's probably not a good thing for me. Well, that's actually a, a great example, too. And it's, it's an example of a slightly different dynamic, which is that our brains are, in a sense, prediction and pattern machines. And something as simple as going to a movie triggers recollection of a pattern of movie going in your brain. So you have this history of going to movies. And, you know, what do we do when we go to movies? Well, we buy the popcorn. You know, you're part of that pattern started neurally being wired when you were a kid. You know, your father bought you the popcorn and the, and the soda or the box of candies or whatever. You know, that's been reinforced and reinforced. So when you go into the movie theater and, as you say, you go and you see that big bag of popcorn, well, Immediately, 
what's going on in your brain is, you know, that pattern is kicking in. Well, I can imagine that there is indeed some sort of conditioning that goes back to when I was six and seven and going to the movies for the first time. But on the other hand, this mechanism in which I, you know, make decisions based on short-term reward rather than long-term reward, that certainly goes back a long way. I mean, when we were on the savannas 100,000 years ago, you know, you sort of had to grab for what you could. I mean, if there was some food source there right now, you didn't think about the long-term effects of diabetes or being overweight or anything like that. You ate it. Sure. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the you know, you can, um, as with so many tendencies of our brains, you know, you can tie it back to evolutionary roots. So you say this, the classic example of life on the savanna, you know, the, the food source is there. You know, you take advantage of what's in front of you. I tend to think that there's both biological evolution and then in tandem and actually moving quite a bit quicker than that is cultural evolution. So, you know, you have this interplay between what our brains have kind of been conditioned to do from way, way back in the Savannah days and also what we were culturally conditioned to do and to think, which is a byproduct of societies forming and cultures forming. So, you know, you certainly have that tendency, you know, get the immediate reward, but you also have a lot of cultural influences that are affecting the decision as well. So then, David, what is the take-home message? I mean, how do we overcome the plight of our advanced brain, which seems to have a mind of its own and is looking for rewards right away when we are now clever enough to recognize that some things have to be decided on the basis of their long-term impact? Well, there is no remedy, but there are things that we can do to counterbalance those tendencies. And one is, in a word, awareness. Building awareness of why we are thinking as we're thinking, why we're acting as we're acting. It is not a uh, foolproof remedy, and it's not going to change every bad decision we make. It's not going to reverse every wrong. However, if we can become aware of the fact that we're jumping on this short-term reward to the exclusion of what the result could be five years from now, or exposing ourselves to a temptation. You know, a classic example is the dieter who's been on a diet for eight months and has made incredible gains and says, you know, I'm I'm on top of this now. I can manage this. I can expose myself to that ice cream or to those chicken wings. And what we typically find is that we really can't handle that exposure. We have a very hard time envisioning our failures. So becoming aware of that is probably the best thing we can do David DeSalvo, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Appreciate it. What makes your brain happy? Well, only you can answer that. What makes your brain happy and why you should do the opposite is the title of David DeSalvo's book. That could be the signal that Fido is hungry and wants his dog chow, or that an intruder has broken into your house. Who, who knows what a bark means? I need Babble Dog to translate it. And when you install the Babble Dog software, Seth, it may tell you that those barks translate as, It's a beautiful day. I love to run and jump. I ate a spider. Oh, look, a squirrel. Fido is having a good day. He's happy. But can a dog, Canis lupus familiaris, even be happy? Okay, wait, wait, wait. Before you loyal dog owners draft your incensed emails, demanding to know how we can even ask that question, because, of course, Yummykins, your pet Pekingese, is capable of experiencing a Shakespearean range of complex emotions, including joy. Well, that question was rhetorical, because this next guy agrees with you. Oh, and this goes for you letter-writing cat or ferret lovers, too. 
Jonathan Balcom is an animal behavior scientist who studies hedonic ethology, which is more fun than it sounds, a term coined by Dr. Balcom to mean animal pleasure. That animals feel pain is well documented, but joy, laughter, hedonism, the research results, and the photos make up his most recent book, The Exultant Ark, a pictorial tour of animal pleasure. Let's begin not with yamikins, but with Goldie. Fish are being misunderstood. There are now studies on fish cognition and now suggesting of emotionality in fishes. And the most compelling one, in my view, in relation to animal pleasure involves what are called cleaning stations on reefs where you have particular fishes of, 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 of more than one species, but a cleaner wrasse would be an example. And this fish swims in a certain way to essentially advertise being open for business. And business means I will give you a spa treatment if you swim over here and just hang out here for a few minutes. I will pluck over your body, remove ectoparasites, uh, sloughing skin, perhaps some, some flesh from a recent injury, whatever, uh, algae. So generally, you'll, you'll get a nice uh, cleaning treatment, and I will get some nourishment from it. And fishes will line up to their turn to be serviced this way. They appear to enjoy it. They cooperate. Uh, lar- a large client won't eat the cleaner. And so it appears to be a mutualism based on pleasure and reward. Now, you used a key word in there, which is they appear to be having a good time, because one could say that this is a symbiotic relationship, that the cleaner fish wants to eat the parasites, because for him that's considered a meal. Um, but also there's an adaptation, a- adaptive there's an adaptive advantage for the other fish to be cleaned. So how do we know they're actually experiencing pleasure? Yeah, you mentioned symbiotic relationship. No question it's symbiotic. It's beneficial to both. And actually, I argue that that's why we should expect it to be pleasurable, because pleasure, just as pain is nature's way of punishing maladaptive behaviors, behaviors that risk injury and death and removing yourself from the gene pool, pleasure is nature's way of encouraging and rewarding good behaviors, quote-unquote good behaviors, that is, behaviors that promote survival, uh, procreation, better health. Now, you have a picture in your book of lemurs sitting back on their haunches in the sun, and it looks like they're sitting in chairs, but they're not. They're just sitting back on their haunches, and their legs are sort of splayed, and they look like they're on vacation. But isn't this also a trick of the eye? Because we're used to seeing in animals, we often see in animals, uh, reflections of ourselves, and we can read all sorts of interpretations to what we think the animals are doing. How do we know that this is truly pleasurable, and how do we know that we're not anthropomorphizing. Well, you could ultimately dogmatically say we don't. We can't know. Uh, But then again, I don't know that you're not a robot planted from outer space Um, uh, because feelings are ultimately private now, of course. Does that mean we should throw up our hands and and be terminally agnostic and say, well, we just can't can't ever go there. Well, unfortunately, science actually took that position for much of the 20th century, and science has since emerged from that. And while I agree that it, it's anthropomorphic and not rigorous to look at the picture of those two lemurs, and for instance, and to, to conclude that they're definitely feeling good, even though they look a bit like us and we can really relate to them much more than the fish we were just talking about, nevertheless, we may expect that it does feel good because, again, getting back to the earlier point, it is a adaptive for them to warm up, to, to feel, to get the sun on their bodies. And uh, we know it feels good for us, so why not? Would we, why wouldn't we expect that in another species that's very, very similar to us in, in many ways? But also, a lot of scientific studies are, are cleverly showing that animals do um, respond in all the ways we would expect them to if they're feeling pleasure. 
Uh, rats, for instance, when they, they will come running to the hand to be uh, flipped on their back and tickled in their belly uh, much faster than they will just to be merely petted on the neck. And when they're, when they're tickled like that, they make ultrasonic sounds that are associated with positive affect or pl- feeling good. Otherwise known as laughter. Well, that's right. And indeed, the scientists of <laughs> the, the main scientist, Jak Panksepp, an American neuroscientist who's done these studies, led these studies, he has used the word laughter, uh, suggesting that, in, that the kind of mirthful response they're having is, is homologous or similar to the kind of feelings we have when we're laughed, laughing. And, and now with brain imaging studies, it's another wonderful window onto animals' inner worlds, uh, which uh, and in this case, it shows that... Um, areas of their brain that are active, that are sort of lighting up during these positive, apparently positive encounters are the same areas of the brain that we, that are active in our brains when we're feeling mirthful. So it sounds like you're saying that although it may be hard to, to provide a metric for whether or not animals are feeling pleasure, on the other hand, there is one, um, and that is in, in, in brain studies and, and also looking at, at the chemistry of some of these animals, which is similar to ours. Yeah, that's right. I mean, dopamine is, is an example. Oxytocin, these are two chemicals that are associated with pleasure centers in our in our brains. And uh, these these chemicals are not unique to us. Other animals also, uh, their brains release those chemicals in, in settings that are, uh, that are we would expect are pleasurable that, because we know they are for ourselves. And again, behavior. We should not dismiss behavior. I mean, we can look at brains and we can look at... Um, biochemistry, but uh, behavior also is a very, very, uh, very useful tool for interpreting animal, animal, uh, how animals are, are feeling. And really, if you look through this book, The Exultant Ark, uh, it's, it's tapping into behavior more than anything. I mean, if you read the text, I, I, I touch on some of these other issues, but this book is primarily uh, through the lens of, of, of an animal behaviorist, which is what I am. And what you're seeing on these pages, albeit it's a still image, you don't see the dynamics of, of the interaction, but you're, you're seeing behavior that bespeaks benefit to individuals and I would say, and I'm making the case, uh, pleasurable feelings that go along with that. So it sounds as though there is an adaptive role of feeling pleasure and play and, and maybe even happiness, if we can use that term with animals. And this is one of your arguments for why you believe that pleasure exists in the animal kingdom, because the image that we do have of nature is that it's harsh and grim and it's all about survival. There's no time for fun. Yeah, that's just so, uh, it's really been planted deeply in our consciousness, and one can speculate as to why there, there, there is. But, but really, we need to realize that so much of nature is actually on the good side of things. It's in the plus column, not in the minus column. Consider all the social animals. Uh, to live in a society requires restraint, consideration for others, and also um, give and take and give and give. Uh, mutualisms are widespread in nature, and um, there, there's various theories to explain why animals are good to each other and why cooperation works better. Uh, but if you look at the way animals exist, they, they, they gro- monkeys, for instance, they groom each other a lot. Um, bats will share food with each other. I mean, the most the most extreme examples of social uh, s- social sort of uh, selflessness is the the eusocial insects, the ants and the wasps. You know, they work together and they will give up their lives for the other. That may be uh, an extreme example that we may not relate to as well. But if you look at nature, there's there's way more co- cooperation than there is competition. Uh, and there's there's more helping behavior than there is harming behavior, especially in social animals. So, Jonathan, you have hinted at this, but what are the moral implications of what you're laying out here, the idea that animals feel pleasure and happiness? Yeah, I think the moral implications are really significant. If you can feel pleasure, uh, life is worth living 
life has, uh, we could say, intrinsic value. That is value beyond any kind of utilitarian value that someone else may place on your life. And if uh, if life has value, if life worth is worth living, well, it follows that death is harmful. I mean, we we tacitly recognize that in our own society. We we view murder as a terrible crime. Even a hypothetical murder that caused no pain or suffering to the victim, we would still say that's terrible. Well, why is it terrible? I think the reason is is because you've cut a life short and life is worth living. And why is it worth living? Because it's fun, because it has pleasures, it has it has downers too, but it's it's an adventure that's worth it because uh, there's good to be had in it. And uh, that's a very important uh, thing we need to realize for other species as well. Jonathan Balcom, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Molly. Jonathan Balcom is an animal behavior scientist and author, most recently, of The Exultant Ark, a pictorial tour of animal pleasure. Well, Molly, speaking of pleasure, there was a lot of it in this program. How our brains have their own ideas of happiness, why we need optimism to survive. I mean, it's enough to keep you cheery all day except for that dip in our daily mood cycle. Thanks to our always joyous production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and volunteer Jay Weiler. Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. You've been listening to Happy Days. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science on our website. Bark, bark, etc. It's beautiful. (laughs) Are we recording still? Oh. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.